Good morning, folks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you are here. You know, it was totally appropriate that we sang uh, that hymn, Mighty Fortresses Are Our God by Martin Luther. Um, today is, of course, not only Halloween, uh-huh, but it is Reformation Day as well. So 504 years ago to this day, this is Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And obviously the, uh, the world transformed forever um, by the gospel. Now you need to know at the Gilbert household, we merge these two holidays. Okay. So this is what we do by merge. I mean, I dress up in my Martin Luther outfit, which I have one and I trick or treat with the kids and I get the most candy and it's awesome. All right. So that's tonight right now, this morning we're in Romans chapter four. So I'm gonna invite you to turn there. We're making our way through this amazing book and we've entitled this rags to righteous. We think it's a little clever, but as you're turning there, if you don't recall, I mean, maybe you do, of course you do, but it was almost a year ago that we were gearing up for a very contentious election, weren't we? And believe it or not, it was only 60 years before that, that the very first presidential debate was actually televised on TV. It was between uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And this, uh, this debate went on to become one of the most famous debates in, human, in U.S. history, because here's what's fascinating. They did a study, and for those who listened on the radio, they judged that Nixon was the winner, or at least it was no worse than a draw. But for those who watched it live, over 70 million viewers, um, Kennedy was the overwhelming favorite. Now why? Well, first of all, have you ever seen a picture of JFK compared to Richard Nixon? That's number one, okay? But it comes about that Nixon ignored the vice of his advisors who said, you know, he did not want to wear makeup. He wore a gray suit, which made him blend into the background um, on TV. Of course, it was in black and white. And he had recently gone through a very serious illness and had lost 20 pounds or something like this. It caused one of his own supporters to say, it looks like Richard is dressed for a funeral, his own. And anyway, it's a reminder, right, how powerful images are, how powerful pictures are. And that's important when it, we, to keep in mind when it comes to today's text. Because the Apostle Paul has been arguing all throughout chapter 3 for this idea that justification by faith lies at the heart of the gospel. And he has been presenting his case logically and methodically and carefully. And he's really impressed upon us, has he not? That the way we are made right with God or justified is through faith and not works of the law. But now Paul wants to continue that discussion, and now he wants to provide an illustration, a story, a picture, if you will, of justification. So Paul pulls out the heavy guns. See, if there were two guys in the Old Testament who would undoubtedly be on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament, surely it would have been Abraham and David. And Paul, to make his case, draws in these two giants of the faith. I know some of you are going to ask me, who else is on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament? Moses and Elijah, of course, but that's indisputable. But anyway, this morning we're in Romans 4, so I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Listen to the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Let's pray. Lord, we think there's no more important matter to consider than how one is received into your presence, how one comes to have a relationship with you. How is it, Lord, that our sins come to be forgiven and righteousness given to us? Lord, these are incredible, precious truths. And so, Father, give us attentive ears to hear them and wisdom to know how to apply them to our own hearts. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please take your seats. We're going to talk a lot about justification this morning. And so let me kind of right out of the gate here provide you a definition. And I think as we go through this text, this definition will kind of emerge and you'll understand it even better. Now, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism. This is what it says. Justification is the act of God's free grace by which he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. He does so only because he counts the righteousness of Christ as ours. Justification is received by faith alone. All right, two points this morning. They're really straightforward. Number one, we're going to talk about justification described here in this text. And secondly, justification delineated. So justification described. Here, right off the bat, uh, Paul mentions Abraham. Now, if our founding father is George Washington. The founding father of the Jews was undoubtedly Abraham. He was their spiritual hero. Recall from John chapter 8, we preached through John a couple of years ago, when there was this huge conflict in Jerusalem between Jesus and the religious leaders about whose authority Jesus was doing these miracles. And Jesus said, I appeal to the authority of my father, right? But the, the Jews said, well, we appeal to the authority of Abraham. 
See, Abraham was their father. They were very incredibly proud of their physical and spiritual heritage. But here's the thing. They believed that God, or they believed that Abraham was favored by God because of his obedience and faithfulness to God. See, he was the first person to be circumcised after all. God blessed him because he was obedient. This was a lineage they were very proud of. They could look to Abraham and in their minds, he is someone who was faithful enough to God to be accepted as holy and as righteous. And now they were following along behind. Now, in response to this, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. And he quotes 15, Genesis 15, 6 to show them that they have fundamentally misunderstood the story of Abraham. He says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then he goes on in verse four to look at verse four. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So let me ask you, what's the difference between employees and volunteers? See, with employees, there is an expectation of certain work performed in exchange for a certain compensation. There is something that the owner, in a sense, or the boss, owes his workers because of the work they've done. Volunteers, on the other hand, right, serve of their own free will. They have no tit for tat. There is no compulsion. There is no quid pro quo. Often, I've heard it said in managerial settings, you, you serve volunteers, right, but you supervise staff. And what's happening here is that Paul is trying to make the point to the Romans that in, in relationship to Abraham, in, I'm sorry, in relationship to God, Abraham was not an employee. Abraham was not someone who earned his salvation before God. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Abraham was a beggar. Abraham was a pagan. Remember, he was just minding his own business, worshiping all of his false gods in Babylon, the area now known as Babylon, and God miraculously, supernaturally called him out of that into this strange land. Abraham was a beggar. He was the recipient of God's grace. Paul's point here is to say, Abraham was not justified by works. If he had, then he would have something to be proud of. He would have some point that he could brag about to God. He had worked for his salvation, and now God owed it to him and was going to pay him back. In other words, God would be indebted to Abraham in some way. However, Paul is saying here, God is never indebted to Abraham. God is never indebted to any human being. God justified him freely through faith. There was no coercion. There was no threat. There was no tit for tat. There was no status quo. There, this was of his own free grace. Now, what Paul is anxious to do here is to sort of pop the hood up for us theologically on the doctrine of justification. And he wants us to understand how exactly this works. You know, sometimes justification is one of those doctrines we're so familiar with, we kind of take it for granted. It's just kind of like getting in your car and starting your car. You may not know how all the pieces work together to fire the engine and to make it go. You just know it works. And you assume it and you take it for granted. It's the same thing with justification by faith. It is such a part of our 
theological heritage to know that we cannot save ourselves, we cannot justify ourselves, that we just very easily just assume it in all that we do. Paul wants us, though, to stop and, and slow down. He wants to pop the hood up on justification, and he wants us to look a little bit closer. So look at verse 4. This is the key verse, I think. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now that word counted, logizomai, it literally means to credit or to reckon or to impute to, or to put something on somebody's account. So in the olden days, you went into the general store and you told the shopkeeper or, or the store owner to put this what? On my tab, right? Put this on my account. Um, Susan and I used to do the back-to-back whammy of Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons. It was the stuff of the nineties, let me tell you. And, and we were, it was all, this was always happening in the general store. Nobody carried money. It was always put it on my account or my tab. But God says to Abraham, essentially, I'm going to put something on your spiritual tab, Abraham. I'm going to give a credit to your account. And what I'm going to put as a credit on your account is nothing less than righteousness. Now, we have to understand what kind of righteousness this was. This was not an intrinsic righteousness where God physically made Abraham more righteous and he sinned, you know, 80% less because he was now declared righteous. It's not, that's, that's, an, that's a native righteousness. That's a righteousness that we grow into as believers as we become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That's not the kind of righteousness Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about an alien righteousness, a righteousness that we don't have on our own, but which comes to us outside of us through Jesus. So we don't become actually righteous. We become legally righteous. And we are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Listen to this quote from Charles Hodge. To impute sin is to lay sin to the charge of anyone and to treat him accordingly. Similarly, to impute righteousness is to set righteousness to one's account and to treat him accordingly. The very first experience inside a courtroom as a participant was when I was 16. I remember it well, January of 1986. A couple of months before that, I just got my driver's license and I was on the freeway in Chattanooga going to pick up my friend. We were gonna go see Rocky Three, of course. And we were gonna, we were pumped, excited, but it was raining and it was bumper to bumper traffic on the freeway. And I saw past me what looked to be my old manager from the supermarket that I used to work in called the Red Food Store. Don't ask. Anyway, he, he had been my manager. I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I remember his name, Stan. I'm gonna get up there and then mess with Stan a little bit. I'm gonna like ride his bumper. I'm gonna like get close, honk the horn, wave. You know, just all the things that kids do in the 80s, of course. But the next thing I know is I'm pulling up quickly to him. And all of a sudden, all the traffic stops on the freeway except me. And my car just continues head barreling into the back of his car. And I am just, I'm, you know, almost undrivable. The police have to come. They issue the citation. Stan was not happy. Did I mention that? Stan was not happy, but not as unhappy as my dad was. But anyway, so I had to go to, to court. I remember appearing in court 
And the judge, benevolently and graciously, Lord bless his soul, said, you know what? First time offense, we're just going to toss this one out. We're not going to put this one on your record, right? He was going to treat me as legally righteous, even though I was unrighteous and totally guilty. Now, what Christ did was not just that. He did far more. I want you to take the analogy out to its logical conclusion. Christ did not just declare us not guilty, but he said, I'm going to impute my perfect driving record for your driving record. And I'm going to take your driving record from you to myself. All your tickets, all your wrecks, all your hit and runs, your DUIs, your, all of these things I take upon myself and I'm going to be punished on your behalf. And then let me tell you what last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to not only declare you not guilty, take your record, give you my record. I'm going to take you home and adopt you as my son. And then I'm going to pay for the damage to the other car itself. See, Christ, this is what it means when Paul says God is the just and the justifier. See, David puts it this way in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. That is from Psalm 32. And part of Paul's crucial point here is to, is to really kind of put it into our hearts and minds that it's never been salvation by works. Even in the Old Testament, God says it's always been by faith. Now, it took the coming of Jesus to bring that process and forgiveness to fruition, but make no mistake, from the very beginning, it's always been about grace. And he has to remind us of this, church, because so many times in our world and culture, it's not about grace, right? It's all about what we do. Listen to what John Stott says. Justification involves a double counting, crediting, or reckoning. On the one hand, negatively, God will never count our sins against us. Amen. Listen to this. On the other hand, positively, God credits our accounts with righteousness as a free gift by faith altogether apart from our works. Guys, that is amazing news. No, no one's ever heard of this before. It goes against the grain of every world religion and philosophy, which starts with man and makes a desperate attempt to figure out how to get to God, how to get to a higher power, how to get to some, some higher meaning in life. This, this is radical stuff. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. And by the way, this is one of Luther's favorite passages. And he calls it the great exchange. Listen to this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here's the verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, that, that, that's an amazing verse, the great exchange. We take on the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, and Jesus takes on our sin and pays the penalty for it on the cross. John Stott says this, Christ became sin with our sins in order that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. 
Church, there is no more important question that you know the answer to than this one. How am I made right with God? How does that happen? How how are we to bridge this infinite gap between holy God and unrighteous us? There is no more important question than anyone will ask themselves. And this is why Paul is putting particular time and attention on it, and we are too. Which brings us to our second point. Justification defined is now justification delineated. And and by delineated, what we're asking is, what is the process, Pastor Paul, where we take this idea or truth of justification and how is it given to us? How How do we receive this? How is this parceled out to us? Is it something that God initiates that we respond to? Or is it something that imitated by us that merits God's response? For the Jew, it was very clear, right? See, the law and circumcision were the apex of their standing before God. They drew great assurance from it. These external markers of religiosity that defined them, that set them apart, that made them better than the the Gentile dogs that were all around them. They took incredible pride in boasting in their spiritual status because of these exterior things that they had incorporated into their lives. They thought, this is what keeps me in right relationship to God. Now, how you and I answer that question is of eternal significance. And Paul knows that the stakes are high. And I want you to notice the way Paul grounds his argument. What Paul does at this point, I think, is masterful. Paul, in making this case for justification, appeals to the very word of God itself. He first quotes Psalm 32, which David we just read. And then he quotes Genesis 15. And listen to what he says. For what does the scripture say? Guys, that is a present tense. It's not what did the scripture say back then or what was said in Genesis 15. But the idea is that what does scripture say today because the Bible has ongoing relevance and authority from now until Jesus returns. See, Paul is not appealing to his feelings. See, so often we we get our sense of assurance and justification on how we feel. Pastor Paul, I've been discouraged, I've been anxious, and I've been depressed, and I don't feel like I'm being justified. I feel really distant from God. And Paul is really wanting to make this crystal clear to us. For what does the scripture say? Paul is not appealing to his feelings. He's not appealing to impressions or even his experience. He is appealing to God's truth as the decisive word and authority in our lives. Quick side note. If you want to know what God is saying, or you think God has gone silent in your life. If you want him to speak to you, church, read the book. God is never going to lead you to a place with his Holy Spirit that is contrary to what his Holy Spirit has revealed right here. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. We're at a place where This is a crucial delineation for us. By what authority are we going to live our lives? By what authority are we going to answer 
life's most important questions. And here's the deal. We're all going to answer them. All of us are going to apply them in some way. For Paul, he's giving us a model church. Go to the book. Go to the scriptures. Go to the words of truth. Listen to what he says in verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The reason, Paul says, that we know that Abraham's justification was not by works, but was by faith, is that he was circumcised after he came to faith. The law was given after the people of Israel came to know him. This is why it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. See, the artifacts of faith, the symbols of faith, they come after the profession of faith. They're not the basis for it. That's Paul's main point here. Circumcision and the law only have meaning in a covenantal relationship with God. And otherwise, they are, they're a death knell. They will condemn you. The law will condemn you apart from the righteousness given to us by Christ. Guys, this is why we believe that faith should precede baptism. So when you were there last Sunday night and saw those baptisms, what were we really celebrating there? We weren't celebrating the rite itself as if the rite had some kind of magical formula. We were celebrating new life in Christ. That people who were lost were now found. People who walked in darkness now walked in light. People who were uncircumcised in heart are now circumcised. And the water, the baptism, is just the sign. It's the seal that points to this amazing reality. So let, let, me, let me end this by asking a series of questions. As we seek to ask God how to apply this to our life. Let me ask you this. Number one, what are the law and the circumcision equivalents for you? It's probably not circumcision. It's probably not the law, right? Or what are the things that you feel like have to be in order about your life before things are okay between you and God. Because we all have that list, right? Pastor Paul, I'm in a real bad conflict with my wife. I haven't prayed or read the Bible in months. Um, I've, I've grown discouraged. I've grown distant from you. And whether it's my struggles in my marriage or struggle with my finances or struggle with, with my heart, See, when you do this, when you let the circumstances of your life dictate for you the nature of your assurance and commitment to Christ, here's what we end up doing, church. We always are going to minimize sin, right? See, instead of letting sin be the opportunity for us to draw near to God, we're justified. Think about this. There is nothing you can do to undo justification. It's permanent. It's eternal. You may struggle with sin. You may have a calloused heart. You may not be walking with him consistently this season. You may be struggling mightily. But Paul is going to make this crystal clear all throughout Romans. Nothing changes justification. It is permanent. It is final. It is eternal. 
But what, is those, what are those things that you sort of insert in that place? Where I'm going to find my meaning, I'm going to find my significance, I'm going to find my certitude in, in my job, or in my money, or in my parenting, or in my reputation. Paul says when you do that, all you're going to do is end up minimalizing sin and running away from God in fear and shame. So what is that for you? Number two, if you are here this morning and God is moving in your heart and you're saying, Pastor Paul, this is me. I, I've relied on a whole host of things besides my justification for my significance, for my security, for my assurance. What should I do? I think Luke 18 gives us a beautiful picture of faith. Guys, the word justify is found one time in the Gospels. It doesn't mean that Jesus did not teach salvation by faith. It just means that in terms of this particular term, it's found one time in the Gospels in Luke 18, and here it is. Very familiar passage. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What is he saying? Here is why, God, you should accept me. I give my money. I come to worship. I fast. And I don't sin in the way, I mean, I sin a little bit, but I don't sin like these guys do, this tax collector, this adulterer, these extortioners. This is why, God, I feel like you should justify me. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what's the word? Justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Every one of us will be one of these two people. Either we will have put our confidence in the flesh, we'll put our trust and assurance in those things that are going to fade and, and pass away, or we're going to beat our breast and say, God, I'm a broken man. I'm a broken woman. I have strayed from you. I have a hardened heart. I haven't been the father I should be. I haven't been the mother I should be. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here, God. God says that person is justified. See, justification, you say, but that seems so like otherworldly how can this be guys this is why we call it the good news it's amazing that you can walk out of here today with the assurance that the righteousness of christ has been given to you and that he's taken away all of your sin it's amazing news it's incredible news which of these people are you and interesting that our response to sin and we will have a response to sin right we're all sinful, fall short of the glory of God, will either bring you closer to God or it will push you further away. This tax collector simply acknowledged their sin, beat his chest, and he cried out to God because God is the only one who can justify. Do you know Jesus as the great justifier? Have you trusted in him? Have you placed your faith in him? 
Have you appropriated faith in these areas of your life where there is great struggle and hardship, realizing that God ultimately judges me, and this is amazing news, not on my righteousness, but on his. Amen and amen. Let's pray.